I know you all have big things that you're planning for this year. Let us help you in being your accountability partner. Uh, we're going to be able to check with you on a monthly basis with our new MAP subscription. We'll follow up with you constantly and stay on top of you to make sure that you execute these big goals you have in store. So to go to MyDreamBigClub.com for more information. Welcome to My Dream Big Club show, where we look to inspire and motivate you to dream big. And I'm your host, Sean Phillips. We're always striving to improve, grow, change for the better. Knowing who we are at this moment is integral to our growth. But in all honesty, that starts from knowing where we've been. Taking time to reflect is a start. But scoping out beyond ourselves and finding the history of where we've been as a people is the foundation we all should establish. You've heard it before. We have to know where we've been before we know where we're going. Who defines what ugly is? Who defines what, a, what is fine, physically, mentally, or even spiritually? You know, those definitions also have to be questioned. You know, they have to be questions because you have to reach a certain level of reality that will allow you to be closer to who you are. That is the comfort in knowing one's identity. That's the comfort in overcoming things that builds confidence. So you can get a spiritual idea of who am I? Oh man, I went through this as a kid. You know, now I'm sitting here in a $600,000 house. I got a great wife, great kids. You know, you know, life is beautiful. Hey, I finally made it. But what is making it? You know, I am somebody. Former professional basketball player, and current radio analyst for the Cleveland Cavaliers, Jim Jones didn't always know he would become a basketball icon. From early on, he actually struggled with his confidence and self-image. Boy, did he get over that. In this episode, Jim shares with us his wisdom for finding our confidence, knowing who we are, and where we come from. Let's go. All right, today we have Jim Jones uh, that's going to be with us today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing fine, Sean. Fine. Yeah, so we're glad to have you on our show. Uh, we like to kick it off with our, our our famous question of how would other people describe you as a person? I think most people would probably say that he's confident. Uh, he knows what he's talking about. Uh, but I don't want to be around him all day. <laughs> <laughs> all right this is gonna be a good one everyone um oh, so on, on the confidence so, you know my degree is in philosophy you know that don't you i i see i see you didn't have to tell me you didn't have to tell me <laughs> I, I you know i picked that up quick so on the confidence side right yeah. is is that uh you know someone that's confident which which is a great characteristic to have is that something that's that's been built up and i know you played in in the nba right so there's there's a strong level of confidence to get there yeah. and to stay there so so, so where well, does that it come comes from? from struggle it's come from doubting myself it comes from growing up in a little town called racine wisconsin which was totally dominated directly and indirectly and behind the scenes by the johnson family who run johnson wax and the johnson foundation it was a, a Racine, the environment was about Mississippi black folks coming north and working in the foundries and factories, thinking that the foundries and factories would be easier than the cotton fields and they weren't. Seven men on the line when my dad poured steel 
all died before they were 60. Wow. Inhaling those fumes, the physical exertion, angry. They, they would have lived longer picking cotton and staying down south. But they were able to get some food for their families. And on the backs of all of those men and my father, I was able to build my own confidence. Let me tell you a short story. I, I went to see my dad one time at the foundry and I wasn't supposed to, but the rent man had wanted his money. And so my mama said, go to uh, the foundry and go to personnel and pick up your daddy's check. The check had been garnished, had been garnished. So I go pick up the check. Lady behind the counter says, hey, do you want to see your dad? And all I could hear is this boom, 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 all that pounding of steel. And it was in about a, a block down this long, dark, sooty corridor was the foundry. She said, you go right over there, you'll see your dad. So I walked down there, took a few minutes. It was a long walk and I kept hearing that pounding. And every time they would hear that pound the, from, the, from the presses, it would go through my whole body. I was about 11 years old, skinny, never weighed over 160 until I was uh, a senior in high school. And uh, I get there and I'm looking and I can barely see people because of all the soot and grime and the sand on the foundry floor. And all of a sudden this figure comes toward me with a rag wrapped around his head with a dark lumberjack shirt on and steel toed shoes. And my dad cussed me out. He said, what the are you doing here? Get the hell out of here. So I ran, I had to check in my pocket. I ran all the way down the hallway and we have a small town. So I ran almost two miles back home and I put the check on the table. My mom went to the bank, cashed it and of course paid the rent man on time. And I was afraid, man. And all that night, I was scared. My dad is what we call the term street nigga. Hang in the streets, do his dirt, drink, come home drunk, beat my mother up, chase her down the street naked, call her all kinds of names, tease her in front of us. You know, not happy with his life and his circumstances. So my dad comes home coughing, had a violent cough, smoked two packs of Marlboros a day, died of it. He comes upstairs, he sits on the side of the bed, bed, Johnny Walker red on his breath, and he says, Jim, don't you ever come to that place again. He said, I, you can do better than me. He said, you gotta be something. He said, because if you don't be something, the rest of them ain't gonna be nothing. I had five brothers and sisters, right? And here I am, 11 years old. He said, you got to be something. And then he poked me in the chest. He said, and he said, you are chones. He punched me in the chest. So even when times were hard, I could always think of what he told me that night. Get out of here. A lot of F words and everything. I'm a chones. I can do anything. And that was my confidence. That was my motivation. So from there, right, he says that, you know, he he, he sees you in a, in a better light of, of doing and, and, and being better than what he was able to accomplish and said that you're a Chones. Um, I know it did a lot to you, but then like, as you took that, how did you take that energy into, you know, being very productive 
and you know even channeling that to to make it into the NBA too. My sister could whip more guys than I could. I couldn't fight. I was too skinny, man. I fought my sister one day. She's about two years younger than me. She had these long fingernails. Do you know she scratched me up so bad at 11 that when I was 18, I still had them scars on my arms and, <laughs> and hands where she used to whip my ass. And so, uh, and so I could never win a fight. You know, I could never. And then one day I started thinking about what my dad said. And we were on the playground. I was about 14. I was about maybe 6'1 at 14. We're playing pickup ball. You've seen it. And we're playing against older guys. And this older guy, I blocked his shot. He was a little shorter than me. And then I dunked on him. And he said, don't do that no more. And we all laughing and, you know, we all 14, 15 years old. You know, we think we mean and we know we ain't, but, you know, we're trying to act the part, play the part. And I dunked on the guy again and the guy swung at me. And we fought. Now, here's a guy who's a pure coward, always ran, never would get to the point where it was physical or confrontational. But I fought this guy. He was a grown man. And I finally overwhelmed because I was... I wasn't necessarily strong, but I had wind and I didn't want to give in. And I kept telling myself, I'm a chones. I can do this. Uh, you know, that's, that's, that's quite the story. So, I mean, you say 11, you're talking about like back in 1960, I guess, I guess when you think about the, you know, the, the family dynamics and still having the fortitude to be able to make it to the NBA and really pushing all the, the distraction and the noise aside, like how, how were you able to, to focus and use that confidence for, you know, getting you to that level? Well, I used to sit between my father's legs. Uh, my father's about 6'4", uh, built like a bodybuilder from the waist up from pouring that steel. And I used to sit between his legs and we used to watch black and white television on Sundays. And, you know, they always showed, well, you wouldn't know, you're too young, but they always showed the Boston Celtics playing someone. And uh, my dad was just sitting there uh, and, and then smoking a, a smoking a Marlboro and coughing his head off. I know. So uh, all of a sudden he looks down at me. He said, Jim, you can do that. And I said, Dad, I can't. And before I could get can out, he took one of the mm. big old foundry hands and slapped me in the side of my face that could be heard probably all the way upstairs and out the door and looked down at me and said, Jim, you are chones. You can do anything if you mm -hmm. just figure it out. And that slap stayed on the side of my face for about a year. You, you, faintly, if you looked at me close, you could see a handprint on the side of my face. Uh, <laughs> but my dad, I know. I know. You know, I, and, and when you're getting punishment like that, Sean, you don't forget. <laughs> right, right. Uh, so, so I had motivation, and I wanted to please my father. You know, because like most young men, our first gods are our parents. I mean, that's, you know, you know, whatever they, it's not so much even what they say, it's what they do. Because the power of observation is so fundamental to learning when you're young. And uh, the, the thing that impedes it is that by observing things, sometimes just based on your limited knowledge of things, uh, your perceptions are wrong. Your realities are, are way wrong. You know what I'm saying? So, so, so at the time, man, I was just trying to just, just please my father. You know, what could I do to make my dad think that, you know, that I was somebody, you know, and uh, I used to pray 
I used to I used to pray, you know, that God would help me to be somebody. And remember, I remember the side of the bed. My dad came upstairs. You got to be something, or the rest of them won't be nothing. See, I had some motivation. I had to be something. Now, what did I put that? Be, how did I define that being something? From what I saw on television. Now they were showing uh, Caucasian, Europeans, and white people living lives, running businesses, uh, being the main characters, uh, and uh, and having nice family. Leave it to Beaver. Nice, nice family. Nice house. Eating three square meals a day. You know, you know, you know. So subconsciously, my mind is sucking all of that in because that was setting the tone for what was acceptable. You know, you know, you know. And so subconsciously. I was taking all that in. So I had a viewpoint, a perspective about what I wanted to be right from the beginning and the influence walking down the streets in Racine, Wisconsin, and uh, only a couple of black folks owned stores and they were grocery stores or, or bars. And then you walk past a, a movie theater and, uh, and, uh, and there's none of us, you know, running it or even taking your ticket. You know, those fundamental things that maybe someone out of Harlem it's just the opposite. You know what I'm saying? You know, you know, but those those experiences early in my life shaped my motivation to want to be something. And I kept thinking, I want to be somebody. I want to be something. And that was a driving force for me. And the confidence came much later. But the motivation and the energy to achieve was established early. Hmm. And then from, I guess from that, right? So, so you go, you go to, to Marquette to play division one basketball. Talk about, I guess, the dynamics there, right? And even because this is still in the sixties, right? Or the late sixties, yeah. right? Yeah, man. Yeah. Marching for open housing. I marched, you know, I didn't know what I was marching for because nobody really explained it. But uh, like most people, you know, it's a crowd and we're all together and we had relationships knowing each other. So I marched with them, open housing, because we weren't allowed to live outside a certain area in Racine. Nobody would even take you to a suburban house, even if you could afford the, you know, the, the, you know, the house. You got to remember, this is the time of Angela Davis and Milwaukee had the commandos. Uh, California had the Black Panthers. And at the time, uh, Chicago had the Crips, <laughs> you know, you know, so there was some, some, uh, some organizations that were aggressively protesting either uh, with guns or with their legs and marching with the signage or with their commentary about the things that disturbed them about this country. And I, that's, that's the mentality I grew up in. Then I'm looking around, man, I see Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, Jim Brown, uh, Bill Russell, all of these great players from all the major sports who were superstars before they started coining the phrase superstars. And they were talking to Ali, who was dead set on not participating in a war because of his religious beliefs, you know? And, uh, and uh, that let me know it was all right. It was all right to feel this way. You see, all those little uh, observations and experiences are constantly shaping the way that I wanted to think or that I felt I had to think in order to be somebody and be accepted. These were people, Bill Russell on television, doing, doing the pro game, you know, after he plays, his commentary, his diction, the way he spoke, you know, all of that was, 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 uh, was eye-opening to me, you know, with the nice suit on, 
and he's sitting there with a gentleman who's ingratiating him about his history and his past and the championships and showing total respect to Bill. You know, those are the fundamentals that were driving me to want to be somebody because I wanted that same, that same level of respect, that same level of being human because, because I wasn't getting that. I wasn't getting that at home and I wasn't getting that out in the streets. And I looked at myself as an ugly duckling, tall, skinny, you know, droopy eyes, and back then, nappy hair, if you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, Jim, on the sense of, like, you know, you're talking about being able to, to see people on TV, to simulate, you know, the life that, that you thought they were representing themselves, you know, the right way when you talk about Kareem, you talk about Bill Russell. As a, I would say, as a, I don't know, as a recipe or as a way for us to really stay motivated, would you re relate that to our observations, as you mentioned before, and, and trying to get out to get the, the experiences? Because we all have different uh, ways our, our cards yeah. are dealt, right? So how, so how do we really yeah. still have that motivation to kind of go out there, even though some things may not be, you know, laid out the way we want it to be? Well, I think it always comes back to a couple of things. One thing is you don't have to accept your circumstances. And if those circumstances are not motivating you to be a better man or a better woman, or if those circumstances are not allowing you the opportunity to be what you want to be, you know, you know, then then you need to 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 uh, try to come to some conclusion with some alternatives or with something that will help you to get what you want to be. And I do know this: everything big starts small. You know, and you know that as an engineer, you know, atoms and all those things were created, the amoeba, you know, the one celled animal where we all are part of and created from, you know, they weren't, they weren't big, you know, they were small things that became larger. And that seemed to be the progression of life that, that once you establish a premise and then you have the discipline and the toughness and you take two steps forward and maybe one back, but you stay on the plan, you know, you stay in the system until, you know, your systematic approach, until you achieve what you want to achieve. And I had learned that earlier because I had overcome some things. I, I, had, I had learned how to forget uh, the way my dad used to beat my mother because it was a way that I could cope with the current reality by not giving it any significance and not dwelling on it. And I fought forward. And I was in constant conflict because my dad was constantly telling me to be something and he was constantly telling me and giving me the challenge to achieve. But then I saw him beat my mother. You know what I'm saying? And then I saw him doing vacation times and during holidays when he got those big checks. He would leave us for three, four weeks at a time, man. And we'd have to go begging to the Salvation Army or to my father's relatives and cousins in order to get food so that we could eat. And then he would come back and act like nothing ever happened. You know, these are the things that, that I'm dealing with. But for most young people today, understanding who you are is so fundamental to your actions and how you think. You need to have that foundation. You need to study history. And if the history that you're studying doesn't satisfy you, study some more. Do some research. Investigate. Be curious. Ask questions. Read books. Listen to documentaries, take notes. All of that is fundamental to you understanding who you are and uh, what you find out might surprise you. 
but it'll all be for the good. And that, that's what these, what our young people are going through right now. Many adults are going through that right now. You know, it's, it is so hard for our young people to be themselves because they're afraid someone will criticize them or uh, it may be offensive. But it is so important for you to be yourself, whatever you are. And then from that, learn more about your families, your ancestry. I don't know if Ancestry.com is an answer, but maybe that's a start. I did learn that my people come from the West Indies. Okay, but in my timeline uh, of study about the passage coming from Africa to this country, the first stop was not Virginia, you know, it was the West Indies. And then from the West Indies, then it progressed as the British got more involved in the slave trade, then they started going to Virginia on American soil. But it started in the West Indies. Why? Because the sugar cane and, uh, and tea and other things that uh, they could get, and they, and they bartered and trade. They would trade the slaves, give them to the plantation owners, and then they would take the sugar and stuff like that, tobacco, and they'd take it back to, back to England. That was one of the first stops in aid. So, so you sort of start getting an idea uh, of your relevance based upon getting a better understanding through your research, through your curiosity as to what this is about. When you, when you entered college, and I'm, I'm sure, you know, being in college, it, you know, that is a culture shock in itself. It was tough, right? man. Yeah. Oh, it was tough. tough. Because I was skinny and I, I thought I was ugly. And all of a sudden, man, I'm walking these halls and everybody's five foot two, five foot three, and I'm six eleven, and they're staring at me and they're laughing at me and they're putting their hands across their mouth and another guy say something with his hands across his mouth, another person laugh, and I don't know how to deal with that. So so what was my alternative? I'd wait to the I wouldn't leave the dorm until the last person oh, wow. crossed the street because Mark because Marquette's a downtown school, and then I would run to my class because there were so many people in the streets getting ready to go to class to start the day. And I just didn't feel comfortable about who I was. But then as everybody saw me play and they started doing articles in the paper that Marquette was going to have an exceptional team. And Jim Jones was going to anchor that six foot 11 and da, 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 da. The confidence started to grow. One way of measuring ourselves is if, is if women like you, or if they were curious about you, one woman never looked at me until I was a freshman mid-season at Marquette. I'm staring at women, but, but none of them stared back at me until they found out that I, I was quote and unquote somebody. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. and, uh, it, it, and it's not a, a criticism. It was just a fundamental observation. And so, man, we go through, man, we go through heck. You know, we, we know we're, we're, even today, we know we're tall and goony and and but uh, but but by whose standards? You know what I'm saying? By whose standards? Who who defines what ugly is? Who defines what a what is fine, physically, mentally, or even spiritually? You know those definitions also have to be questioned. You know they have to be questions because you have to reach a certain level of reality that will allow you to be closer to who you are. That is the comfort in knowing one's identity. That's the comfort in overcoming things that builds confidence so you can get a spiritual idea of who am I? Oh, man, I went through this as a kid. You know, now I'm sitting here in a $600,000 house. I got a great wife, great kids. You know, you know life is beautiful. Hey, I finally made it. But what is making it? 
you know, I am somebody. You see where I'm going with this, you know, but it doesn't end there because, because think about it. What about so many of these athletes who make hundreds of millions of dollars and they still break the law, they still have issues that are broadcast all over? Why aren't they satisfied? You know, and the first thing out of our mind, man, if I had what he had, I wouldn't be doing nothing. I would just, no. Because what he has is something, uh, a mentality, a success denominator based on what man says is important. You know, you know, what human beings decide what the issues are, you know, rather than us decide for ourselves. Because anything man creates, it won't last. I don't care how much money you make. I don't care how many big buildings you build. I don't care how many nice cars you have. Those are all man-made. The strength of your character and, uh, and the ability to know oneself is based on one's spirit. And it has to be based on things that are infinite and not finite. Yeah. That's why guys, no matter how much money they get, they're never satisfied. Do you do you look to like ment like I'm sure you've done some mentoring and, and coaching up with with these guys, right? How are you? Because I, I think even the NBA players, right? People are people at the end of the day. Yes, you know, they're making their, yeah. their millions and, and, and people recognize them, but everyone has these things that they're struggling with internally. So in working with them, right, as we can relate it to to just people in general, um, how do you really get them to, you know, be comfortable to to know? what they should be really chasing after or, or, or to ground them? Like what are, what are some of the ways that you're able to, to mentor them in that aspect? Well, uh, experience is the best teacher, but it's a slow teacher. Uh, but also I have to know who I am. And sometimes, uh, most times, the best example you can give to a young person is the example you set. Uh, because he's observing you, even when you don't think he is. He's learning how you interact, you know. And so, and so sometimes players come to me, uh, but mostly we talk about basketball. But in those basketball conversations, I like to peck at them. Uh, you know, I may say something, you know, that, 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 that to get them to understand is not so much the X's and O's and the execution that you think maybe isn't right or that you wish it was more beneficial to the way you play and all that stuff. But, but sometimes you have to take a step back and try it and do it and be confident in it and give it your best shot. And what they find out through the course of a season, especially young players where they think they know our league until they get in it. Ooh, brother, you know, that crossover I used to do and go past people that crossover I used to do and step back and shoot it in their face and nobody could stop it. Well, now when I do that crossover, so-and-so blocked it four times the other day. Now when I do the step back and then I go forward and get to the rim, they're blocking my shot or else they're taking the charge. Things change, see? And so, and so what happens is those perspectives, those, those windows of how you think life is and the world is can be, can be put into sports also because we have a warped idea of how the game should be played because they show us replays in slow motion, <laughs> you know, you know, so, so, so what I try to do is set an example by how I dress, how I carry myself. And I may peck at them, you know, I may peck at them, 
you know, and sometimes guys like Kevin Love and some other guys, they will come back and talk to me and ask me questions. But very few of it has to do directly with sports. It's about something else, you know, because they understand uh, that it's not about basketball. The maturity that Kevin Love has shown and some of the other players like LeBron, and I've watched him since he was in junior high school playing to now, it's been incredible as far as how they've grown, that it's not about the material things, you know, that they understand it's about something deeper than finite things, man created, uh, you know, uh, that the value that human beings create in things is not how you become a better person or you ascend to being what God wants you to be. You know, it has more to do with what is right and what is wrong. And in order to get there, you need to understand who you are. You know, what is what is your place? And I think it's simple as getting knowledge and understanding. Let me tell you a short story. And you might want to write this down. We'll be right back. Hey, just want to thank you all for listening to the show. If you guys could please do me a quick favor and take 15 seconds to write a review about the podcast. We appreciate you and thank you in advance. This is my favorite verse in the Bible. First Kings chapters 1 through 23, depending upon the type, it may go as far as 1 to 30. Uh, and it's all about uh, King Solomon. King Solomon was so was such a good, disciplined Christian. Well, at that time, it wasn't Christianity, but he was so disciplined that God looked at him and said, you are like your father, David. And because you've been loyal to me, came to him in a dream, because you've been loyal to me, I'm going to give you anything you want. Solomon pulled back. He thought about it quickly. And he said all he wanted was knowledge, wisdom, and understanding to run his great people of Israel. And God was so pleased that he gave him everything else. He gave him coffers full of gold from the floor to the ceilings. He made him the wisest man of all time in that time in the world. Solomon's wisdom wisdom is still quoted and defined today because he had practical solutions for everything because he was a loyal follower of his belief. And so the thing I tell young people after I tell them that is that, listen, you can have all the material things you want, but the true goal, the true reward is in your spirit. Wisdom which is spiritual, knowledge and understanding, which is through observation and experiences. Do you know the highest form of intellect, Sean? The highest form of intellect is imagination. Yeah. And what are they doing many times in our school system? They're taking away music, dance, theater, writing, vocal, choir. They want to take it away. When those are the things that would help you to be whatever you want to be more than anything that you could do in school, the ability to think and create. You see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. So on that on that imagination standpoint, right, because you were the second player to leave college um, before graduation. What were you imagining, right, at that point when you were leaving? And then also, as you think about, you know, because it, it was, you're a trendsetter, right? 
you you set that trend in a way where people felt more comfortable in leaving. So like, what was going through your mind? Um, how did you calm the nerves? Um, and what were you imagining? Well, this is what happened. The year before, the greatest player, and the second greatest player, Kareem to me is the greatest college player, the second greatest player who dominated more than anybody in college was Spencer Hayward. Spencer Haywood left after his sophomore year at University of Detroit. And I said, oh, my goodness, the greatest college player at this time, he carried them in the Olympics, the whole thing, single-handedly defeated the Russians, Spencer Haywood, right? Six foot nine, 235, 19 years old. Incredible, right? And so I'm, I'm observing this, and I'm watching on TV, and I said, Man, I know I'm no Spencer Haywood, but I'm pretty good. I said, I'm going to leave. So there had been talk about them having this rule they're going to put in uh, that had to do with poverty, you know, so that a kid could leave college early because of his economic uh, uh, situation. So, uh, so, at, so, so at the time, I said I was going to leave now. Right after Spencer had did what he did, we played in the Pan Am games. Me, Bob McAdoo, uh, Brian Taylor, who went to Princeton, way ahead of the curve. Uh, oh, man, this is, uh, Paul Westfall. All of us played on the Pan Am team. And uh, we made a coup, me and McAdoo and Brian Taylor, that we were going to leave college because we felt we could play pro. And we stayed in touch all that summer. Spencer had already gone. He had gone through court trials and all of that, and uh, and uh, he won the case. Why? Because he won based upon a fundamental in American law, labor law, called the Sherman Antitrust Law, which means that anyone can pursue what they call, quote, unquote, gainful employment. That is a right of this country, gainful employment through the Sherman Antitrust Laws, right? And so that became the fundamental go forward uh, for me. And so uh, uh, I got an attorney. Teams were calling. And uh, I didn't want to go because, listen, I had spent one, two years, I'm um, two and a half years in college. It was March. We had just beat uh, Jacksonville. And uh, and we I'd beat a, a guy who was a center named David Brent, who they compared next to me. We'd beaten him on national TV. And that night, when I when I got back to the dorm, I was supposed to go down to this attorney's office uh, because he had something he wanted to talk to me about. And a team, the New York Nets, had made an offer to me. Now, at this time, I'm tripping. I'm ugly. I'm still ugly now, and I still got nappy hair. But I'm the man on campus. Hey Jim, hey this, oh, la 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 la. You know, so I'm feeling good. Now I don't want to leave. <laughs> you know because of the adulation. But then I end up, I get down there, he tells me that a team had just made an offer and they won't wait till after the season. You're going to have to turn pro now because they lost some players. They lost Bob Lanier and some other guys before you who said they were going to come and didn't come. And so uh, they want you to turn pro now. So we got Al McGuire on the phone. I said, coach, this is, this is what the, the attorney explained it to him. And he said, Jimmy, you got to go. He said, because if you don't go and you get hurt, you know, that would destroy me because you had an opportunity to take care of your family. My father had died. He died my freshman year 
early in the year and my freshman year died of lung cancer. So it was just me and my mother and five brothers and sisters. My mother was making salads uh, at a great Italian restaurant. And uh, she'd bring the leftovers home, and that's what we lived on. So I was primed for this uh, poverty rule. I, I can't think of the, the name that escapes me right now. So that's how I turned pro. I didn't want to go, and I turned pro, yeah. yeah. And the terms were 125000 for five years, 39500 for 15 years, and a $500,000 tax-free loan up front. I mean, a, t a tax-free bonus up front. Now, taxes at that time were anywhere from 15 on the low side to 17 and 18%. Yeah, I know. And I got a tax-free loan worth a half a million dollars. So you see where I'm going. So I had to go. I guess from, from there, um, I mean, you get, you get to the league and, you know, we talk about just the, 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 the maturity, you know, in, in that essence, Ooh. but Ooh. <laughs> you said, ooh. Ooh, Sean. Ooh. Talk about the ooh. 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 ooh, man. I was struggling, man. I'm getting in there. My shot getting blocked. The game is faster. Uh, I got teammates who are making 35000 a year, and here I am making 125, and I can't, I'm not half as good as them yet. And jealousies and games being played, smiling in my face, laughing behind my back. And the only person that stood up for me were two people, Lou Carnesecca, who was really on loan from St. John's, and then uh, who was our coach at the time, and a guy named Tom Washington. They called him Trooper. He had been in the old industrial leagues, and yeah, this guy could really play. Couldn't shoot, but did everything else. Defend, rebound, pass, set the pace, find the open man, set picks. I mean, this guy was the prototype to the way these kids play now. And uh, Tom Washington pulled me to the side and said, get your head up. He said, yeah, it's, it's a struggle, but you'll learn it. He said, you won't learn it if you give up, if you give in. He said, just learn it every day. You know how I judge people, and I shouldn't be judgmental, but I watch how they play sports. I don't care what level it's on, how they golf, how they do sports. I get a good idea. To, yeah. yeah, man, how the mind works. How their mind works. So don't ever let me see you play golf, Sean, and then you hit it into the weeds over there every time you get up. Oh, it's, it's not it's not my it's not my <laughs> mental game, man. It's just the the physical game of golf right now. But I'll get there. I'll get there, and I'll beat you. I'll beat you. Okay. okay. <laughs> Challenges on. I, I, I hear you talking. Okay. So so I get I on the on the essence of like you know I want to connect what you what you yeah let me keep it simple yeah as a. Yeah. Uh, collegiate athlete you left early and then right now we're at the fair pay to play right with uh california yeah, allowing players to to get paid um while in college so what's your what are you seeing that's starting to kind of come up on the horizon with uh with collegiate sports around the uh, fair pay to play well this country is based on a capitalistic system and if you understand the fundamentals of capitalism, it's about exploitation. It's about getting cheap labor. It's about producing something cheaply and getting the most dollars for it. So if you understand that, then you get a better idea as to what the NCAA is all about. They're about making money. Let me give you an example. In one 30-day period, 
they call it March Madness, right? With the money they get from television and radio stations and advertisers, they do a billion dollars. One month. You, you see where I'm going with this. And then there's people on their board that don't want to pay kids. And the excuse they use is what a lot of racists use when they talk about individualism and, and private property. It's the same thing. Well, you're going to get your college education. You know, you know, you know, what do they call it? Rhetoric, dissidence rhetoric or something like that. It's a counter to the fact. And, and so what happens, you get these guys who say, well, get your education. Yeah, education is fine. But the education would be a lot easier if I could put some money in my pocket. I'm going to send you a quote. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to send you a quote uh, by Michael Irving. He spoke in front of 600 high school kids and gave one of the greatest quotes I've ever heard. But the essence of it was these kids come from nothing or close to nothing. That's why they put all their eggs in one basket and it's a roll of the dice and they are committed to being a success in whatever sport they're in. And if the system says that you have to go through college in order to qualify, you know, then I got to find a school that'll put me in that position. Now, once you get there and you bring in millions, televised Sunday games, these teams and colleges are making millions, and look at the students they attract. You know, I'm from California, but I love Michigan and Chris Weber, so I want to go to Michigan. That happens all the time. It's a strong selling point. You know what I'm saying? So what happens is that they come there. They're giving you all of what they have. Exploitation now. Why is it exploitation? Because the return they've established is that you're getting an education. And that's, and that's the fundamentals of it. I wasn't there in the first place to, to, to get a, a basic education. But I was there as the next stepping stone for me to achieve what I felt I had to achieve for my family from an economic perspective and from an ego perspective, an identity perspective, you know, trying to be relevant. All of that crashed into one ball is what made me want to achieve. And, and, uh, and uh, when those guys went out and now California's paying those guys, that's the first step. They're all going to have to pay. They're all going to have to pay. And then what would motivate this system? What would what would change the status quo that they would at some point start paying athletes? Social media. The ability to get information, the ability to hear other people's opinion, if you disagree or not, the freedom of a narrative voice, a dialogue gets people to start thinking and not just when television or CNN or ABC decide, okay, we're going to change the, we're going to change the narrative. So these are the issues now. And this, what this, this is what the social justice platform has to be concerned with is that we cannot allow television, which is a fundamental part of the system and these programs to decide what the issues are, you know, and that would take diligence and it'll take more intelligent people like you, Sean, in order to make sure that your direction and that the understanding of what you're going after stays on track. A lot of money, right? A lot of money that are being made yeah. on, on all levels, especially football Ridiculous. and basketball. Ridiculous. Um, hey, they gave that baseball, not to cut you off. Remember, they gave a guy who was an underachiever from the Nationals. He goes to Philly, picks up a check for $400 million. 
and the last two years at the Nationals and his first two years with uh, Philly, the guy hasn't hit over 280. 400 million. Bryce Harper, is that his name? Yeah, Bryce Harper. Yeah, you know, you know what I'm saying? How can you blame a kid? When they, we have players in the NBA, in the NBA making $30, $40 million a year. When they told us that the denominator to make money was winning a championship, and none of those guys have won championships. You see where I'm going with this? How can you blame a kid for not wanting to, you know, to bypass college and go into the pros? I can't tell a kid not to do that. Are you crazy when the fundamentals of this society and a capitalistic system are based on economics? Who are we fooling? You know, that's the reality. Don't be telling me that, well, you get an education. Yeah, you're going to need an education in order to make the right decisions to keep it. Trust me, you will. I can testify to that. Instead of trusting other people and having them do your money for you, and they'll beat you every time because the amount of money and and the privilege of controlling you economically is too strong. And very few attorneys that I know work in your best interest. Yeah, so that representation I mean, I mean, is key. But but what I was connected to too, yeah. though, is um, I'm sure you're familiar with Rich Paul and Clutch Sports and what he's been doing. I love him. Yeah. I love him, man. And, and, because Rich and, and they tried the money. to, yeah. and, they, and they tried to also block it and start putting these different stipulations on what an agent can be and, and the type of education that's required. Um, so the reason why I do mention that is because I think it's, and, and you kind of tied it into social media, but it's so important for us to especially things that we believe in is that we don't stay, stay silent. So that we're able to kind of push initiatives and kind of progress the way that we should be progressing. And I'm going to connect that to, you know, you had mentioned um, the social justice as well and what's happening. Um, so I'm, I'm, I'm curious too, especially you being, you know, with, with the Cavs and you know, your experience with the NBA, what are you seeing as, as ways that you've been able to, you know, be part of the movement or, or or even a better question from when you were, you know, back in the sixties to today, um, have you seen change? Well, back in the sixties, everything was Lily white. Uh, there was no relationship between the owner and his players until Dr. Buss put his arm around magic Johnson and he became, and he developed a relationship with magic. Think about it. Before, it was just two separate worlds. I own the team, and uh, you play for me. You know what I'm saying? And so that changed when uh, Dr. Buss gave Magic $25 million over 10 years. Yeah, I know. And put his arm around him and spent time with him. You know, built him up, developed his uh, his uh, his uh, celebrity. Way ahead of the curve, babe. You know, and, uh, and, uh, and so owners like that became more prevalent. Now, they're still far and in between, but Dr. Buss was a trailblazer. Now, the other side of that is that, uh, let's see, what are we talking about? Um, uh, the Cavaliers. The Cavaliers have positioned themselves. I dare you to look at any NBA team that doesn't, that has more people of color working for them in their front office. And if you take a black GM, Kobe, and then you take Bickerstaff, and uh, you, and uh, those are the two that are everyday making everyday decisions. And I heard that Dan Gilbert just hired a brother. 
you know, he just hired a brother, I think, to run Rock, his his uh, his, uh, his uh, Rock company. I think it's called Rock. Um, I can't think of the name of it. But he just hired a brother. And then you look at all the people that we have working, me and Campy Russell and Austin Carr. No team has three guys over 65 years old still around doing their job because we become the voice of the cast. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Nobody has that. Now, the next step is what we call inclusion. There's diversity. But diversity doesn't mean a thing unless you have inclusion. Kobe has inclusion because they said he and Bickerstaff set up the strategy that they'll be using in order to, you know, for us to get talent. We have all kinds of vice presidents and directors of this and that. We even have a guy who heads diversity, executive director. I think he's only five in the league. But but the Cavs are getting there. They're getting there. Everything big starts small. And some people, you know, they want to argue that nothing's been done since slavery first came here. Well, that's not true. There has been progress. But every time a little progress is made with two steps, we've had to take a step back. And so there is progress. There's the 13th and 14th Amendment, right? 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendment. There's the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that had to reinforce Amendments 15 and 14 because they were not being uh, adhered to. You see where I'm going with this. So all of this, there has been progress, but it's not going to happen in one lifetime. It took 400 years or more for it to get to this point. That's why young people today have to keep fighting. They have to keep fighting. They have to understand what they're talking about. They have to be sensitive, but less emotional and more intellectual in how they think and how they develop strategy to overcome the obstacles that they want to overcome in social justice, you know, and that is important. It really is important. And you have to understand that we can't do it alone. And in order to change minds, sometimes the best way is through policy and laws that force people initially to think, not necessarily think, but to do certain things. And generation after generation has to change. Integration, right? You know what I'm saying? You know, not segregation, integration, you know, was was a fundamental. It got you past the point of assuming that we were a certain way and they were a certain way. Now we have integration, so we start to develop relationships between colors and between uh, uh, economic levels. And all of that is important because it's knowledge. Now, what you do with that knowledge is different. Now, we still have a lot of people who won't change because if they change, then they would have to understand that we're human and that the injustices done to us, the injustices done to us are wrong. But if they had the perspective that we're not as good as them because of privilege, they call it the value gap, or that through racial habits, this is the way it's supposed to be, NCAA, you know, that you're supposed to play for free and uh, get this education and be happy while, while we make billions. That's, no, it doesn't work like that. It's working like that now, but it won't work like that much longer. See, these are all the progressive movements from everything small, everything big starts small. Most, most of what we fight for, 99% of it, is more just about, about being human, that we want to be ourselves. But every time I try to be myself, I'm reprimanded, 
or I'm blackball, or people don't want to be around me because they're afraid that people link me to them and they may lose a job, maybe lose favor, and you know somebody would take that to heart. See, those are things that when I told you earlier about learning to be yourself are so important. Then the question becomes, Sean, how do you be yourself? Education, self-education, books, documentaries, ask questions, take notes, uh, investigation. All of those things are fundamental. That's, that's the strength of education. That's the strength of being educated is that it'll create a curiosity and you'll have a, an understanding of how to get results or how to t make sure something is a fact and not a farce, that this perspective that you're holding maybe isn't a fact, maybe it's an illusion, that the reality that you live in is not conducive to respecting other people. You, you, you see where I'm going with this? Yeah, yeah. I think, I mean, I will say education is the, the greatest equalizer because it, it allows yes. us to think for ourselves. And I think on the on the stance of what you're you're talking about, um, especially with the social injustice and especially with bringing upon change, it's that we have to also unite, right? Unite as a whole and we have to support one another and we have to be able to, 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 to speak up, right? Because if, if it's not us, then who? And I think yeah, with but, those things, but, right? But, Go ahead. But Sean, there is a certain level of togetherness. Social media. Social media has become the vehicle. You know, our legislation branch of our country doesn't move without first listening in on social media, noise, where the yeah. government is thinking. Yeah, you know, because why? Because for the last 200 years that Black folks have been trying to, 150 years we've been trying to vote, and Democrats and Republicans have made promises to us that they never kept then we had no recourse. They limited our ability to, to, uh, to, to challenge and protest. But the social media, I'm sitting in my bedroom. They don't even know, have to know who I am. And I can say what I want to say. You know, some of it will be blanked out, but <laughs> you can say <laughs> what you want to say. So what happens, Sean? What happens when you're in a society that, want, that still wants to make people cookie cutters and control them and the very nature of being young is that you don't want to be controlled you don't want to be like everyone else you want to be you and so you fight it and you develop these subcultures that's why they had to develop all of these organizations NAACP uh, Soka Lounge right for the Polish people you know what I mean the Italian Americans organization because of things that they couldn't get the society to do for them that they had voted for and became citizens to. You understand where I'm going with this now? Yeah, yeah. And so social media comes along and now billions of people a day are giving their opinions and thoughts. And so there is a certain unity because this resource has opened up an opportunity for them to voice an opinion. There is no congressperson in the House of Reps or the Senate that doesn't make a move unless he confronts social media and what they're talking about. Trust me, because, and there is no person, and the reason they forced us there, because our Congress quit listening to us. They've been doing for years what they want to do, what they think, quote, unquote, is best for the country. What does that mean? What does that term mean? What is, what is best for the country? What does all that mean? You know what I'm saying? Social media is that 
is a is a fighting resource to get people to 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 uh, 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 persuade them to get them to think like you're thinking, or even just just to just a just a, as a resource to get my feelings out. And I tr- and I'm telling you, every politician in Congress has someone that all they do is check out social media. One hundred. One hundred. I, no, I, I, I agree with that. Right. Is, is that right? Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. So, I mean, so on the on the topic of education. Right. So you are, uh, you know, your father. I have two of my own, uh, soon to be three. And you have five of your own that are, are grown. Yeah. And, you know, and, and I think from your philosophical ideas and the way that you are able to kind of push on your your background with philosophy. Um, what what's your advice to to the to the young fathers out there? Know who you are, and I'm not talking about economically knowing that you know I'm on the lower scale because we live in the hood and all that stuff. We all st- most of us started there. Believe it or not, most people that are rich, they weren't rich in the beginning. You know, they had to build on something. And and uh, it's possible to be rich if that's what you want. Now you're gonna make some sacrifices. You might lose family. You might lose, you know, even your morals. But you can be rich in this country if you're willing to sacrifice. But what I tell most young fathers is to respect your wife because she is the stronger of the two. Listen, Sean. All human life it don't come from us. It comes from them. You mean, you know what I'm saying? God, the creator, put her in a position where she could bring forth life. Now, this is a point well taken. If she's sickly, if she's in poverty and can't get three meals a day for herself, then anything she brings forth is not going to be as strong as it should be. You see where I'm going with this? Women, by their very nature, are closer to God than we are because they can bring forth life. The other thing I would tell you is that they're more sensitive to what's happening around us, even though they may not understand it. So we have to be patient with them. We have to be patient with them. And we have to quit being Western thought, male-oriented, and think that we got all the answers and we need to make all the decisions. I'm so glad, Sean, that when my kids were young, they didn't listen to me. They listened to their mother. <laughs> because Jim because Jim Jones had some weird ideas about raising kids. You know what I'm saying? They listened to my wife. And as I got older, I started pecking at them a little bit, but I was careful because the foundation set for my kids was not necessarily set by me. It was set by my wife, who spent day in and day out with my five children, the triplet boys and the two daughters, you know. And then when I came in there, I supported her, even if I disagreed with her. Let me tell you, it's a short story. So me and my kids are riding. They're playing AAU. They're about 6'4", six, 6'5". Six, you know, everybody thinks they're going to be seven feet like me. So, so, we're, so we're tripping a little bit. And my wife, staying on point, staying realistic, we're driving back from Pennsylvania, I think. She says, boys. Yeah, mom. Uh, I want you to listen to something I'm going to tell you. She said, "Yeah, yeah." What, what, mom? If you can't go to UCLA, Michigan, Duke, or Marquette, or Ohio State, will you promise me 
that you'll go to the best academic school you can go to. And Sean, I pulled to Steve Harvey. I looked straight ahead and said, damn, they're going to fall for this? And they did. They said, yes, Mom, we swear. And I looked at my wife, and she looked at me grinning. And when the offers did not come in from Michigan, Duke, and a few other places, Colgate, Brown, Dartmouth, all those schools came. And the reason they came was because when my kids were younger, I said, babe, we're going to go play. Well, uh, you know, so I'm going to take the A. You get, well, Kyle can't go. I said, what you mean Kyle can't go? Jim, he didn't finish his homework. Kyle is flunking. And I know he's smarter. He can't play for the rest of the summer. And Sean, I like, oh, Lord, what do I say? And the boys are looking at me. And I said, Kyle, you got to stay home. Kyle sat on the bench for a month and watched his brothers play AAU because he had bad grades. And people would come back and say, man, how come you ain't playing? And my wife would look back up at him on the bleach and say, tell him the truth, because I'm a dummy. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So she established that education was important, even though her husband was still a jock. But, but that's what I would tell a young father. Don't be so quick to be the man. You know, let the mother run. I mean, let her rule stuff. If her, if her intentions are good, and she's a spiritual sister or brother. I mean, a, a spiritual sister. Let her lead. Ain't no shame, Sean. I'm telling you the same thing. Just because you got all them degrees and stuff, her level of spirituality is closer to God's than, than, than yours. Easily. It's not even close. Because right. who do we come from? Think about that. Who do we come from? Our mothers. And you know this as an engineer and a mathematician. Nothing can be stronger than that from which it comes. That's a physical fact, a mental fact, and a spiritual fact, and a mathematical fact. You know that, right? And a scientific fact. And where do we come from? A woman, our mothers. They're better than us. So big ups to the women. So we're going to the, we're gonna do a quick lightning round. So just, I'll give you two options. You pick the one that resonates with you most, and then we'll, we'll kind of wrap it up. So the first one, are you ready? Yep. All right. Uh, texting or talking? Uh, ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> talking. I'm better. Talking. I'm better talk. Texting. Texting, man. I, hey, how do y'all text like that? How do you do I, I'm gonna that, have to man? teach you another day. I'll teach you another day. Oh uh, my goodness. Read, reading or basketball? Oh, reading. Knowledge, brother. Wisdom, understanding. Uh, one, right. I'll send you a picture of, I'll send you a picture of my uh, library. I'll take you okay. on the reading. So ask for permission or beg for forgiveness? Uh, ask for permission. Oh, okay. Ask for permission. Uh, yeah. Los yeah. Angeles or Cleveland? Uh, hmm. <laughs> I got to pick Cleveland because I don't have a money to live like I want to live in Los Angeles. But that's the only reason, Sean. All right, all right. Uh, yes, this is a yes or no. Will LeBron return to the Cavs? Uh, I don't know, but that door is always open. I think he's paid enough dues to to do whatever he wants to do. All in right, this case. there you go. So, so Jim, I'm, I want you to to leave us with some words of encouragement. Uh, keep it simple. Uh, know thyself. 
Perfect. 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 All right. So uh, thank you very much. Appreciate your time and continue to continue to push out your wisdom and to, to do the things that you're doing. Um, I continue to follow you and, and I appreciate all the things okay. that you've been able to, to let us know. Dream big and never stop dreaming. But remember, dreams without action are just dreams and often lead to disappointment. So let's get to work. And thank you for listening to my Dream Big Club show. Please leave a review and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whichever podcast app you have. I'm your host, Sean Phillips. Take care. Take care.